Yes, I can hear you, Clem Fandango. Believe it or not, the greatest American hero recently showed up on Amazon Prime, allowing me to revisit the series for the first time in nearly 30 years. The Greatest American Hero is a show whose cultural footprint far exceeds the length of its legs, running as it did for only two and a half seasons, from early 1981 to early 1983. UK earrings were sporadic, with the show normally popping up in early Saturday mornings on mid-afternoon time slots on the ITV network, probably as filler programming. This was a few years after the series had already been cancelled in the US. Yet, thanks to its catchy theme tune, Believe It or Not, by Mike Post and Stephen Geyer, and appearances on t-shirts in shows like The Big Bang Theory or Answering Machine Messages on Seinfeld, the series remains fondly remembered by a generation. A Stephen J. Cannell production, The Greatest American Hero featured a number of Cannell staples, such as two lead characters of differing generations and outlooks, stock plots about biker gangs and chop shops, and hard-boiled dialogue. In this case, FBI agent Bill Maxwell, played with relish by veteran Robert Culp, is the hard-nosed elder statesman, more conservative in his outlook and more likely to play things by the book. He's teamed up with a younger, more liberal and looser partner, English teacher Ralph Hinckley, played with charm to spur by William Catt. Hinckley and Maxwell are thrown together when Ralph is bequeathed a supersuit by an alien race that gives him superhuman abilities. The aliens wish him to use the suit to do good deeds and help the Earth out with its many and varied problems. The cast was rounded out with Connie Selica as Pamela Davidson, Ralph's fiancée and, later in the series, wife. As with all Kennell shows, plots were of secondary importance to the characters and their interactions, with Ralph and Bill developing a humorous and sympathetic double act over the run of the show, with both actors equally adept at comedy and drama. Humour was a big part of the show, as Ralph tended to blunder through his cases, having lost the instruction manual, and therefore being unable to figure out how to actually use the suit. Maxwell had a nice line in acerbic asides about how Ralph looked, and dismay at Ralph's inability to work through a well-thought scenario without cocking it up. Ralph's discomfort with the suit, a red skin-tight number with a black cape and calf-high booties, often referred to as the jammies, matched Cat's own embarrassment, which played nicely into the general geniality of the show. Selica was often given short shrift, with her character suffering from Cannell's inability to write really good women consistently, but whenever episodes focused on her, she shined, and even having the main character be in a steady relationship was different for US genre shows of the time. One has to wonder what was wrong with all these TV leads in the 70s and 80s that they had never been married or even apparently had a long-term relationship. The three leads had a gentle, easy chemistry, developing a nice bond over the run of the show. Maxwell's slightly bombastic nature contrasted well with Ralph and Pam's more easy-going lifestyle, and Culp made the most of the role, chewing up Cannell's witty dialogue and spitting it out with relish and mustard sauce. The aliens were wisely left off-screen for most of the series, although in other episodes we did learn that they had given the suit to someone before, but he had been corrupted by its power. The motivations for trying to help Earth was that it was a garden planet, and therefore worth saving. 
Mostly, though, the plots explored how Ralph juggles his newfound abilities with his divorce, raising a small child, his relationship with Pam, and his responsibilities as a teacher to a special education class of kids who must be dumb as hell because they all look 24 years of age. The show feels very much like a Marvel comic book in its depiction of how having super abilities doesn't necessarily make your life better, and Ralph feels very much like a Stanley Jack Kirby style Marvel character. In fact, the recent movie Shazam felt very much like a big screen version of a greatest American hero story. The loss of the instruction manual is also a neat storytelling device, with the writers being allowed to come up with different things the suit can do on a weekly basis, instead of being tied into a set of rules from the get-go. In addition to flight and strength, Ralph can turn invisible, is magnetised and can see future events, as well as being able to do whatever other things the plot requires. As with most shows of this type, the better episodes were the ones that stretched the series' premise beyond the usual tackling of commie bad guys and mobsters. Don't Mess Around with Jim introduced the previous owner of the suit. Operation Spoilsport saw Ralph trying to avert nuclear catastrophe. And My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys saw Ralph ponder the nature of heroism. Divorce, Venusian style, shows us the aliens for the first time, and actor Robert Culp even wrote and directed a few episodes himself. Always a sign an actor is enjoying his work. I was pleasantly surprised by how well most of this held up to adult eyes. The stories aren't as silly as later canal shows like Riptide, and it's not as campy as the A-Team would become. The relationships and characterizations are all played totally for real, grounding the rather ridiculous premise, and the actors give their all, totally committing to the part. Shoehorning in Ralph's students, a pre-V. Fay Grant, a young, dumb Michael Perret, and a far-too-old Jess D. Goins is often a little irritating, but each of their actors do their best with what they're given, and it's nice to see a semi-recurring cast of characters for the series. The show started well in the ratings, but was hit by a lawsuit from Warner Brothers, who felt the premise was too close to Superman for comfort, a silly notion that was rightly ignored by judges. Sadly, by season three, the series was pitched against a new hit show, Knight Rider, and the unstoppable Dallas, and promptly sank in the ratings, cancelled after only one full season and two half seasons, and with four episodes remaining unheard. However, in 1986, Stephen J. Cannell was being honoured for his role in creating some of television's most popular series. The story goes that at this function, NBC's Brandon Tartikoff, presumably with a big cigar in his mouth, said, ABC made a big mistake in cancelling that show to Cannell, as clips from The Greatest American Hero were being played, and a deal was created to return the show to the airwaves, only with a new lead. This time, a woman. Boy, can you imagine if this was announced today? God, I can see the YouTube videos and Twitter tweets now. The Greatest American Heroine was written by Babs Grey-Hoskett and directed by Tony Mordente. It manages to feel mostly like a new episode of the show, albeit one made three years after the series ended. All the main cast return, Kat, Selica and Culp, with Murray Ellen Stewart being introduced as Holly Hathaway, the new recipient of the suit. And boy, does the name Holly Hathaway sound like something Stan Lee might have come up with. For syndication, this episode has been retooled to be just added to the run, complete with standard opening credits and interstitials, although the title, The Greatest American Heroine, has metal-striking sound effects as the I-N-E appears on screen. We open with Bill bringing everyone up to speed. This is Special Agent Bill Maxwell, FBI. Audio report May 15, 1986. <clears throat> Life used to be so simple. 
for me. Ordinary, card-carrying FBI agent trying to do the best job that I knew how for my country. So I'm holding my own. Uh, everything's just going along by the book until they decided to team me up with a school teacher named Ralph Hinckley and kidnap me to Palmdale and my life took a sharp left into the margin. Things got a little weird there at the beginning, especially since Ralph managed to lose the book of instructions how to use the suit that they gave us. Anyway, we made the best out of a very weird deal. And then it happened. The one thing we were all scared to death of from the beginning. Worst case nightmare scenario. The first thing of note is, what the hell's happened to Robert Culp? Has he been ill? In the three years since the series went off the air, Culp has gone completely grey and lost a lot of weight. Fortunately, he still has the attitude, so within moments we've kind of forgotten his appearance, as Maxwell reveals what happened recently. After five years of helping people, three longer than the show actually ran, Ralph found his secret exposed in a really truncated and abrupt scene. A lot of this episode is abrupt, and this is apparently due to the fact that a 90-minute script was cut down to be a regular-length episode. Instead of seeing Ralph fall over on a pavement with a young girl in his arms, apparently we would have been treated to a big action beat, where Ralph saves the president, the public and life aplenty one last time, giving Cat one last heroic deed in the suit before his outing. Not only would this have been really nice to see, it would also have explained why the president just happened to be passing by. Cat hasn't changed at all in the intervening years, but the suit has. Instead of the red jammies with its cotton look, it's morphed into a shiny spandex number. Think of the difference between Chris Reeve's Superman costume and Dean Cain's suit. The emblem is also red on silver instead of red on white, and it's now a one-piece. Almost overnight, Ralph becomes a superstar, hiring agents to manage his personal appearances and dropping by Saturday Night Live and The Tonight Show. Ralph lets the fame go to his head a little, which some people have complained as being out of character, but I think that's the point. We saw in the episode Don't Mess Around with Jim that the suit's power corrupts. It's just in Ralph's case, the corruption reveals itself as hubris and ego rather than greed and violence, simply because Ralph's a nice guy. The sudden fame is causing problems between Pam and Ralph, especially as Ralph doesn't seem impressed that his Carrie co-star John Travolta is up for a role in the film about his life. After all, he's not even blonde. That this is a bit out of character for Ralph is pointed out by Pam, who wants life to go back to normal, something Ralph rightly scoffs at. However, the aliens aren't happy with current developments and call Ralph and Pam up to the spaceship, which looks like the set of the mothership from V. The aliens, looking like the Guardians of the Universe from Green Lantern comics, spell it out for Ralph in this clip. Uh, Mr. Hinckley, we saw you on the Dick Cavett show. Dick Cavett, huh? <laughs> I didn't know you could get that stuff up here. That's great. What am I saying? I mean, of course they get that stuff up here. You, you probably have a, you probably have cable too, don't you? You are a celebrity now, Mr. Hinckley. You and the suit are known to the world. This situation will not work. We must make the world forget 
You can make the whole world forget they ever knew about Ralph and the suit. All we have to do is give the suit to someone else. Give the suit to someone else? You mean I... I have to resign? I can't believe it. Hello? All those things I used to take for granted. All gone. Well, it was... It was good while it lasted. And you'll always have your memories. Or will he? What about me? I mean, I put up with a lot of stuff I deserve to remember, too. You may remember also, Mrs. Hinckley. What about Bill? Bill Maxwell. You think it important that Mr. Maxwell remember this? No, what if we give him the suit? <sighs> now, wait a minute. Bill's already wired up on this whole thing. I mean, sure, he gets carried away once in a while, but deep down inside, he's a... He's a pretty good guy. Oh, Mr. Hinckley, the owner of this suit must be more than a pretty good guy. Well, I remember when Ralph was chosen, it was because you guys were looking for someone with... with a strong moral character, a healthy idealism, altruistic nature, and true integrity, right? Not, Not Bill. Bill. Mr. Maxwell was always to serve just as an associate. I see no problem with him continuing in that capacity. Well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, there's a lot of people out there. Uh, I don't know if I'll have a chance to interview everyone. Well, you will find someone, I'm sure. And when you do, you will know it. Good luck in your mission, Mr. Hinckley, and thank you for all you have done you are dismissed this was the best scene in the show ralph finally gets what he wants to be no longer in possession of the suit only to find that he doesn't really want it more time devoted to this would have been nice maybe a scene of ralph flying around one last time remembering the good times and realizing that he has become corrupted it also seemed a tad odd that the aliens felt it was ralph's job to find a successor after all, in previous instances, the aliens did that themselves. Bill being pissed off about this was really well played by Culp. It was going to be a very extensive search, because old Ralph couldn't pick his trusted friend, Maxwell, who was obviously best suited for the job and to receive El Sudo. No, no, he had to pick somebody new. Okay, I'm not going to beat a dead horse. I accepted that. Standards, however, were going to be a little bit high. You know, needle in a haystack, 12 and a half on a 10 scale, that kind of stuff. And I agreed to that too. And then he has to go and get creative on me. Ralph doesn't really seem to struggle too hard finding someone else. Whereas, again, more time could have been devoted to Ralph's search. That may have padded a few fun, humorous scenes. Likewise, introducing Holly could have been less random. Sure, I get that having her be a teacher, like Ralph, albeit in a primary school, not a high school, makes sense, but she's almost too good to be true. 
She's involved with numerous charities, adoption agencies and causes like Greenpeace, all of which are noble endeavours. But what made Ralph the perfect choice was that he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes, he used the suit for his own selfish needs occasionally, but at his core, he was a good man. Now, I can see the humour that can be derived from partnering ultra-conservative Bill Maxwell with a hippy-dippy chick like Holly, but this makes Bill seem far too mean. Ralph was more middle of the road, whereas in this episode, when Bill calls Holly a skirt, bemoans Ralph picking a woman at all, and then mocks her for wanting to save the whales, he comes across as mean-spirited, which Bill never really did before. Sure, Bill and Ralph had their differences, but Bill never openly mocked Ralph's interests. In more evidence of the choppy nature of the editing, Bill knows all about the deal without having a scene with Pam and Ralph at all. In fact, that this following clip is their only scene together is one of the show's massive missteps. Ralph introduces Bill to Holly. It goes about as well as you can imagine. What's to go wrong? What are you talking about? Bill? Passed it on. The suit. You passed on the suit to somebody else? Without even asking, without running it by me, without checking? How could you do that to me, kid? It's right, Bill. I know it is. Now, the green guy said that when I found the right person, I would know it. And I know it, Bill. She's the right person, Bill. Isn't she the right person? Yeah, well, she may be the right person for him, but what a... She! What did I tell you? Hang tough, hon. Ralph, you did it to me, didn't you? He did it, didn't he? You picked a skirt! He picked a woman. No! That's bad enough you wouldn't fight for your old pal, Maxwell, to get the suit. That's, that's hard enough to swallow. Now you got me paired up with Nancy Drew? Holly Hathaway. Who? Holly? Who cares? Bill, give her a chance. I already told her all about you. But he lied, so you're safe. Bill, she's got everything. Strong moral character, integrity, she's altruistic, warm, she's kind, she loves children and pets, she loves helping people. Yeah, you left out brave, clean, and reverent. Sounds like Miss America. Foam the runway! I'm coming in! Counselor, that is not funny. You must be Bill. <laughs> Holly, you're gonna have to work on that. I know. Yeah, I'm fine. I, I caught a downdraft and it kind of threw off my landing. Ralph, you were right. This cape is so cumbersome and, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure about these little shoes. They're so blah. Maybe we could go with a nice pump. Uh, Holly, I think you better forget redesigning the suit. I think the green guys are kind of locked into this model. That's too bad because, you know, I really do think it's got a lot of potential. No, you're right. It does. It does? Oh, uh... Uh, uh, Holly, um, this is Bill Maxwell. Bill Maxwell, meet Holly Hathaway, your new partner. What's the story? You and I are kind of like partners, huh? You kind of sniff out the trouble spots, and then the last minute I fly in and save the day. <laughs> is that kind of how the picture goes? Well, I don't know. Uh, is that kind of how the picture goes, Ralph? Uh, well, um... Basically, yes. <laughs>
Again, having Holly be a teacher, just like Ralph was, keeps some continuity within the show. And her being an adoptive mother is pretty cool. But the kids are very annoying and saccharine. Hopefully, had this gone to a series, they would have been forgotten about very quickly. Much like Ralph's son, Kevin. Ralph and Pam saying goodbye to Bill is quite sad. But after that, well, the show was lucky they had Culp. Because Mary Ellen Stewart is far too bubbly and over the top in her exuberance. It's a different take to have someone want the suit rather than Ralph's reluctant hero approach, but that simply isn't as interesting to watch. The training montage is fun. So much fun, in fact, that the recent Shazam movie would do a take-off of it. But it again suffers at the editor's hands. Holly and Bill are clearly talking to each other, but instead this is turned into a goofy comedy montage with slow motion, sped-up footage and John Philip Sousa on the soundtrack. Culp is still watchable, but he has to tone down his performance to accommodate Stuart's OTT nature, especially when the plot finally kicks in 15 minutes before the end of the show. Sure, this is only a pilot, and over time I suspect the writers and Stuart would have gotten a better handle on Holly's character, but with US television, you rarely get a second chance to make a first impression. Holly takes Bill to Newfoundland after introducing him to veggie shakes, which goes well, to investigate illegal whaling. Are you sure that you don't want to shake, Bill? I, I really think that you could probably use a lot of vitamins. Hathaway, this ain't a game we're playing here. Look, look at that. You're so hot on the news of the day. Look at that. We have got terrorists here blowing up innocent people. We got domestic felons wreaking havoc upon society. Uh, we we got crime, kid, right in the backyard. It's coming out the wazoo. The big red menace hanging over us. Sword of Damocles. You want to go skin diving. I don't want a yuppie milkshake. I want a partner with sense. You don't have to go if you don't want to. I got the suit. I can go by myself. You wouldn't. Well, I don't want to, but I just thought that we were going to be partners. I thought we were going to be a team. Well, we are. That's right. Well, we are going to be a team. See, that's what I'm... Well, okay, that sounds like fun to me. Fun? It is not supposed to be fun. Why not? Because. Why can't it be fun? We're supposed to make this planet a better place to live. That sounds like fun to me. You always like this? Pretty much. That's what you're going to really appreciate about me, Bill. I'm never in a bad mood. Hathaway's motivations are again noble. She seems to subscribe to the MTV strapline Think Global, Act Local, and she certainly has the best interest of the planet at heart. Bill is more of a big picture guy, and he would rather tackle terrorists and commies. Again, there could have been some fun conflict had this gone to series, and to be fair, Stuart is better in the scenes where she's deliberately winding Bill up. Her arm wrestling scene is fun, although her clothes ripping off like the Hulk when she starts winning is a bit silly. The show never seemed to be able to decide if the suit worked when it was under clothes, or if it had to be exposed, and this episode doesn't come down on either side of the argument. Sadly though, the entire climax takes place in a dingy bar. Hathaway does nothing out of the ordinary. She wins a wrestling match and chucks a few guys around, but there's no moment of doubt no feeling of her doing the wrong thing by taking this job. No heroic resolution to her internal dilemmas. Nothing that makes Holly a relatable person when thrust into such a ridiculous situation. She doesn't even fly again. Hell, I'm not even entirely sure the plot got resolved. It's nice to see the guys again. 
and to get to see the end of Ralph's story, allowing for a climax that the abrupt cancellation of the show never allowed. But the greatest American heroine lacks... something. But I'm not sure what. All the elements are here for this to work, yet even with everyone trying their best, it just doesn't come together. The characterisation of Holly is too thin, the episode far too choppy, not giving enough breathing room, and it loses the central appeal of the show, the relationship between Bill, Ralph and Pam, when Kat and Selica bow out halfway through. A sad misfire for what could have been a promising show. Robert Culp went on to other roles, reprising Bill Maxwell in an episode of Robot Chicken and narrating a number of M&M's videos before he sadly passed away, aged 79, in 2010. He was the greatest American hero's unsung hero. William Catt went on to appear in the horror movie House and in numerous films, TV and games over the years, recently appearing in an episode of Supergirl. He's a charismatic and endearing actor that I feel has never really been given his due after a splashy start in the movies Carrie and Big Wednesday. I wonder how his career would have been different if he'd got Star Wars and Mark Hamill had got Carrie. When the show started, he and Culp didn't get along, but before long, both men fell into an easy rhythm and, in a case of life-imitating art, became good friends off-screen. Connie Selica was in the TV version of Hotel at the time this pilot was filmed, but later fell into the traditional role of ageing women actors in Hollywood, i.e. lots of TV movies and Christmas films. Murray Ellen Stewart appeared in the soap As the World Turns for a few years and has one appearance in the Stephen Cannell series Renegade, but seems to have retired from TV and film just after that. The Greatest American Hero is a concept that seems ripe for reinvention. A recent reboot was announced with Hannah Simone in the title role, but that never went past a pilot. I think the key is to not recast these roles. Kat, Culp and Selica were like Shatner, Nimoy and Kelly and that they made those characters their own. Other actors can play them, but they're not as good. The best way forward would be to have the aliens just give the suit to a new character and go from there. Maybe as Michael Bailey has suggested, they should bring back Michael Pare as Tony Villacana and have him now be an FBI agent who has to work with a high school kid at Whitney High who the aliens have now given the suit to. That gives us a link to the old show without requiring appearances by Kat and Selica. Whatever happens, there are certain of us who have fond memories of Ralph Hinkley, a bumbling Superman with a heart of gold. Now that's a scenario.
Our first email tonight is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. He's entitled it to the mixed bag who fell to earth, and one day I'll get that in the right order. With the Doctor Who content lately, it's like you're going out of your way to get me back on the regular listening bandwagon. You clever boy. So yes, Series 11. And to be clear, when I talk about what's going on with Doctor Who right now, I generalise it as the latest series rather than making it about Whittaker specifically, as if everything going on somehow ties directly to her. Overall, Series 11 was an exercise in frustration for me on several levels, and in listening to your discussion of its opening episode, which is solidly done, especially by the standards of first outings in the modern incarnation of the show, I can't help but flash back to when you and Michael talked about The Last Jedi. In other words, I'm right there with you that the most common whiny complaints are absolute bollocks, and many of the people making them need to get their heads out of their own arse. And yet I still don't really like it. Which annoys me to say, because talking about it on Council of Geeks risks me of being lumped in with the toxic sludge of YouTubers, who I won't name because I don't want to give them the traffic, so instead I'll signal boost a guy I really like and say that you should check out Stu Bagful if you haven't before. He's critical, but never cruel, and frankly very funny at times. Yeah, I'm breaking in to Nathaniel's email to say, yeah, I think that's an issue. I, I think all of the whiny bastards... All of that bullshit has taken away from legitimate criticism of the show. Because like you, the people who have legitimate criticism with the show don't want to be lumped in with don't want to be lumped in with them. Which is fair enough. So they kind of stay away from it. And it's not that there isn't legitimate criticisms of the show to be had. There's a lot of legitimate criticisms. I don't think season 11 was overall one of the best seasons that Doctor Who has ever done. I do not think it's as bad as they all seem to think it is. I can only assume those people have never seen Colin Baker's first season, or Sylvester McCoy's first season, or any number of episodes from other Doctors that, quite frankly, sucked an awful lot worse than any of the Jodie Whittaker episodes. It just seems that, yeah, they're focused on the fact Chris Tribnell and a diverse cast of characters and a woman lead, and that's what they market because there's clicks in it and there's hits in it and there's money to be made in being a twat. Uh, I, like you, Nathaniel, I'm not interested in that. There's lots of stuff I don't like. But by and large, if I don't like something to the extent that I, I really don't like it, you just won't hear me talk about it. I just won't do an episode on it. The whole point of this is for me to celebrate stuff that I do like or stuff that I think has merit that doesn't otherwise get its due. So like, for instance, this episode on the greatest American heroine, I don't think this episode was a great pilot or a great start for that spin-off show. But I think overall, the greatest American hero is a really fun show that deserves some more attention, that deserves people to check it out. If I really hate something, I'm not going to do a show on it. And I'm certainly never going to criticise anything just for putting a woman in the lead. Because that's just absolutely ridiculous. You know, I grew up with a binary woman and the $6 million man. I have no problem with them taking an inherent concept that was initially male and applying it to a female. Because in many ways, the Kenneth Johnson produced binary woman show is a better show than the $6 million man. In terms of its writing, in terms of its acting, in terms of its drama... It's a, it's a better written show. Steve Austin's a more iconic character. 
and Lee Majors, you know, the more iconic actor. But I think the Bionic Woman's often the better show. So just to criticise all of that stuff that I took the piss out of in that show, and I did take the piss out of it. You know, I, I was freely taking the piss out of those people. And I don't care that I was taking the piss out of them. They deserve to have the piss taken out of them. Because most of them are pompous assholes who don't actually have any sense of self-awareness or even any self-deprecation. Most of them are just jerks, quite frankly. From the videos I've watched, and I can barely stomach more than 20-odd minutes of most of them, and that's on a good day, they're, they're, they're mostly just idiots. I'm sorry, it's not constructive criticism. And so I don't mind people having a criticism of something, as long as they're backing it up. I object to you know, social distance and everything. Everything you watch that is heroic fiction is about warriors for justice in some capacity. And I'm at the point now, I'll really be brutally honest with you, I'm at the point now where the minute you invoke that three-word phrase or that three-word acronym, that three-letter acronym, sorry, I just switch off. I'm sorry, the minute you use those three letters, you've lost your argument. Because I'm like, well, how about not parroting what everyone else is saying and coming up with your own opinions and theories and what have you? And it's just it's just at the point now where there are certain buzzwords like that where if I see them or hear them, I just, right, I'm done. Done with you. Not interested. Anyway, let's carry on. Part of my frustration, Nathaniel continues with Series 11, is that most of the major decisions were made are things that have been on my short list of what I'd do if I ran the show. This includes things like no season arc on mystery box story elements, classic era monsters being put on ice for a full series, and self-contained one-off stories being the primary focus. Honestly, the only major bullet point thing the show does that I think was a mistake was having a three-companion team along with a new Doctor. As I feared, it meant that the show had to split time between all the new characters, and I honestly didn't feel like I got a handle on all of them as quickly as I should have. I frankly didn't get Whittaker's Doctor until the literal last scene of the series finale, but that's not really a good thing. Ryan and Graham work well and feel like the best established dynamic, but Yaz is often left with little to do and feels like dead weight. She's not bad, but the only thing I can say that she adds to the proceedings is giving the story a personal link in the excellent Demons of the Punjab, and I'm not sure that one good episode fully justifies her being there. My gut feeling is that this should have been the Doctor with Graham and Ryan, and Yaz could be introduced in the next series, where they hopefully find some stuff for her to actually do. So if I like most of the broad decisions, why don't I like this series? Well, as always the case, something can look great on paper, but it's all down to the execution. A good idea can still be poorly presented, and I don't mean visually, because the show looks probably the best that it ever has, and the more ambient soundtrack by Sigun Akinola is an interesting shift from Murray Gold's bombast. Performances are solid, so I'm ultimately left to the point of the writing as being the weakness. But again, not the concepts, the actual scripts. As I noted, The Woman Who Fell to Earth is solid, and I even like the ghost monument, although on reflection, the little things that made it for me were performance-dependent. But after all of that, the best episodes, Demons of the Punjab, Kablam, Rosa, which I have very complicated feelings about, but would never accuse of not being a good episode, and the absolutely sublime It Takes You Away were written by people other than Chris Chibnall. I'm left with the overall impression that if he's going to run the show, it might be best for him to deal with the big plans and direction whilst leaving the actual scripts to other writers. Because his ideas aren't bad, they just lack, for want of a better word, oomph. 
I was slightly heartened by his New Year's special, Resolution. It has its issues, but it felt much more self-assured in the writing than much of his other work so far. I wonder if we just sat through a bit of a Growing pain series. I'm interrupting again. I need to rewatch Resolution, and I have been planning to do it for a while, because essentially we're not disagreeing. All those episodes that you just listed there are my favourites of the series. I loved Kablam, even though it had a few issues in... Okay, so is, is commercialism bad? Is big corporations bad? It didn't really decide. I, I also loved It Takes You Away. Uh, I thought they were really good episodes. So we're, we're kind of almost, again, when you actually sit down and talk to somebody, we're in the same place, more or less. My problem with Resolution was the amount of time it spent on Ryan and his dad, which I do not care about. It's bad enough that American writers are obsessed with daddy issues, that it's now bleeding over into British television writing. And it's like, just, no, don't do it. You know, we used, we used to go through entire series without having characters have daddy issues. And so, for me, that episode could have could have trimmed all that shit, and it would have been a much better episode. But, you know, your mileage may vary. As for Whitaker, continues Nathaniel, I really don't feel it's fair to do much assessing of her. I say in the wake of having accepted Peter Capaldi as my all-time favourite Doctor, despite not really getting on board with him until his second series. So now that I finally feel like I have a handle on what she's going for, I'll be curious to see what comes next. I'm not sure I can say that I'm excited for Series 12, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that Chibnall, on his own, and not because of fan whining, will recognise some of the ways in which Series 11 stumbled and adjust for them. I like to give folks the chance to get better, and I hope that my favourite show will only improve with the next go-round. Still annoyed that it won't be erring until next year, but... What can you do? I think some of that is down to the BBC's budgets and fundings and, and all of that stuff. People clamouring that the licence fee should be abolished, ignoring the fact that the BBC make much more diverse programming than Netflix or any of the streaming services. Essentially, the BBC amounts to £13 a month, whereas Netflix is anywhere between £10 and £15 a month. But for that £13, you get BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three, BBC Four, all the radio stations, all the local radio stations, plus a diverse mixture of genre programming, from Doctor Who science fiction to drama. Still some of the best drama in the world is made for the BBC. Russell Davis's recent Years and Years, for example, a cracking show. Um, it's comedy. Uh, documentaries, David Attenbury, still the best documentary filmmaker in the world today. You get all of that for £13 a month, but because it's a compulsory payment, essentially a tax, people complain about it. One of the things I do need to make clear for listeners here, it is not state-run. The government has no actual say in how the BBC is run, which why you'll go on Twitter and you'll see right-wingers moaning that the BBC is too left-wing and left-wingers moaning that the BBC is too right-wing. Constantly. All the time. They can't be both. As far as I'm concerned, if you're pissing off both sides, you're doing your job right. Anyway, rant over. Continuing with Nathaniel's email, I've probably ended up eating 15 minutes of whatever episode you cover this in, so I'll leave it at that. I'll replug my stuff and point out that over on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, I recently, after the fervour died down, did a video dealing what I felt with the faults of Series 11, whilst also pointing out how invalid I feel some of the common complaints are, which most people seem to be pretty fur. 
It is pretty fair. I've watched. I watch all of your videos, and that that was a very good one. But what do I know? Complaining YouTube talking head that I am. Cheers, mate. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. I do not lump you in with those people, Nathaniel. I always find your videos interesting and fun to watch. Frequently don't agree with what you're saying, but you say it very well, and that's what I want. I don't want to agree with everyone all the time. That's boring. I actually want to hear from people like you and me who essentially are in the same place. We may have little niggly discrepancies in exactly what it is we like or don't like, but again, all those episodes that you listed there were amongst my favourite of the year as well. So, you know. Our next email is from the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Shag Matthews himself, telling, talking to me about tie-in novels and Doctor Who. Hi, Andy. Hi, Shag. Been meaning to write for ages. Hope you are enjoying your summer with the family. Yeah, it's blisteringly hot here. I mean, you live in Florida, so I don't need to talk to you about blisteringly hot. Shag continues, your episode about tie-in novels and Remembrance of the Daleks really hit my sweet spot. I'm an avid reader of TV movie tie-in novels, particularly favourites including Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, and sometimes when I want to punish myself, even V. I began reading Target novels in 1983 and continued until they ceased publication. I recall the Remembrance of the Daleks novelization was highly praised for Ben Aranovich's inclusion of extra material to expand the story. In the novel, he included the character of the Other as a person who worked closely with Rassilon and Omega during the foundation of Time Lord Society. This was an extension of the Cartmel Master plan that never played out on television due to the show's cancellation. Virgin Publishing then took the other concept and other pieces of Cartmel's master plan and wove them into the New Adventures series of original Doctor Who novels, published from 1991 to 1997, eventually connecting the Doctor to the other. A small seed planted in the Remembrance book bore tremendous fruit for many years in original Doctor Who fiction. As I recall, other enjoyable Target Doctor Who novelizations included several Dalek stories. Extra effort was always put into these. The Chase, The Dalek Master Plan, Power of the Daleks, and Evil of the Daleks. I've also heard good things recently about the novelizations for The Time Warrior and Myth Makers. Currently, my passion has been Star Trek original fiction. I enjoyed going back and forth with you on Facebook about some of these books. Just finished rereading Prime Directive. Wow, what an exceptional Trek novel. You are correct about Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens being some of the best original Trek novelists. Another personal favourite of mine by a different author is Strangers from the Sky, a truly exceptional novel. Ah, I'll try Strangers from the Sky because I don't think I've ever read that one. I'm currently reading Sarek by Anne Crispin, which is set in the immediate aftermath of Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country and features a race of humans who want Earth just for humans. They want to expunge Vulcans from Earth. And so far, that's that's really good. I'm about 100 and so pages into it. It's a really good read. Really enjoyed your re-examination of the 13th Doctor premiere, continues Shaq. The way you broke down the pilot and showed how it matched previous Doctor Who patterns was interesting and impressive. Lots of food for thought when I rewatched that episode. I feel the real highlight of the season has been the casting. Both the Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor, the significance of casting a female and her acting ability, and the exceptional companions. All fantastic actors who really live their parts. The online outrage from certain camps about casting and agendas has been exhausting and disappointing. I enjoyed listening to you invalidate their arguments. Hope these people begin to fade away and go and bother other fandoms. Well, they seem to be bugging Game of Thrones for a bit, but there's a new Star Wars film coming out, so 
I'm not holding my breath for that being an intelligent and reasoned conversation. Shag continues, for me, the stories themselves have been fine. Some good, one or two very good, some meh. None really exceptional. There was no Blink, Doomsday, Eleventh Hour or Day of the Doctor or any other episode that will be re-watched by me for years and years to come. Whilst I agree the production values were very professional and top-notch, I personally felt the directing, music and some cinematography was not very exciting. I like Doctor Who to be bombastic. I love Chibnall's Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and The Power of Three, but this season feels more like a season of his 42. Again, fine, but not amazing. With that said, I really enjoyed the directing and music for the New Year's Resolution episode and hope that's a sign of the future. Really been loving your show and look forward to each episode. Sincerely, the Irredeemable Shag, the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, it was lovely to hear from you, my friend, and from Nathaniel. Always fun to hear from Nathaniel. Um, I'm going to call it a day, though, because we're at uh, 40 odd minutes for this episode, which is about where I like to keep them. Um, next time, I don't know, but it may be something that Shag Matthews recently suggested to me. That may be where I go next, but that may take a lot of prep and writing and reading. So that may not actually be next, but we'll see how it goes. See how it goes. As always with the palace, it's whatever tickles my ivories. You can be like Nathaniel and Shag. I don't know why you'd want to be like those people, but you can be like those people as well by emailing it. Uh, at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and letting me know what you think uh, of anything, really. And we'll be back next time. And, you know, I'm more optimistic this time. Everything is going to be okay. You know, hopefully. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>